Welcome to Radio Cachimbona. This is the third lit review. Radio Cachimbona is a podcast hosted by one Salvatorian, that's a Salvadoran tourist, growing, healing, and storytelling in Southern Arizona. I'm here to storytell the fierce ongoing resistance occurring in these borderlands and centering Central American voices. Thank you to the patrons for supporting the lit review. If you're listening to this now, you are a lit review patron, so I really, really, really appreciate your support. And today I'm honored to have Denise Rebel of the Criminalized for Defending Education episode here to talk about Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. Denise, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, so Denise Rebel, I work legal defense, deportation defense, and I'm also been an activist in the community for a long time, and I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yay! So for those of y'all that don't know, Brian Stevenson is a really famous lawyer who has mostly focused on death penalty appeals and wrongful convictions. He founded the Equal Justice Initiative in Alabama and did a lot of work around wrongly incarcerated people put on death row. And so we Just Mercy is kind of is his memoir sharing the early days of him starting up the practice and everything that he saw. He primarily works in the South. Is there anything that I didn't add that should be noted in the beginning? No, I think that's a pretty good synopsis. <laughs> okay, cool. All right. The first thing I wanted to talk about, uh, which I was really struck by, is the stories of the women who were criminalized for basic for their stillborn children. Brian Stevenson shared the story of Marsha Colby, who ended up having a miscarriage because she was older. She was 43 at the time that she was pregnant and she was poor, so she didn't have very good access to prenatal care. And so she ended up miscarrying for that reason. And instead of blame being placed on the structural issues that made her pregnancy likely to fail, like actually the U.S. has the highest rates of infant mortality for being the wealthiest country. That's really, really sad. And she ended up being punished for it. And she was charged with having murdered her child. Mm -hmm. If I believe too in the book, she didn't have the resources to have a burial. And she buried the child in her backyard. And then the neighbor is who alerted the authorities that she, she like the baby was nowhere to be seen, and assumed that that she had murdered the baby, and that's yeah. how they were they found out about the miscarriage and blamed her for murdering the child and assumed that. Yeah, which is also very disturbing. It's I wonder how that neighbor feels now, realizing the consequences of her actions, because that really was what ultimately led to Marsha Colby being incarcerated is this what he calls a nosy neighbor who reported her to the authorities and i think Mm. she she worked at the elementary school where marshall colby's children went to school and she she pressured one of the cafeteria workers to call in the police tip it's and it's like what kind of wickedness is that yeah i mean (sighs) I, w- I feel like I, I tried to be like, okay, I feel like it was just very cynical to just as- automatically assume murder, too. Yeah. It w- and, and the di- diabolicalness around, like, finding the ways to get to get her convicted. Yeah. It's weird because it's kind of seemed like the neighbor, her, like, Marsha Colby and the neighbor had had issues in the past. Because mm-hmm. it's just, like, there's no other reason to report her. I mean, if somebody had, was pregnant and then not, I would assume... That they miscarried. Yeah. And I would not be nosy about it. Oh. I would not bring it up. I would feel like this is too sensitive. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't want to trigger anyone. That's it's none of my business. Yeah. And I think, yeah. like, one of the things that... That was how sensitive the situation was. To begin with. Yeah. yeah. kind of gave Marsha Colby... It, it agitated her. And so when the police came to question her about it, she lied to them. And... That she did that because she was just she was so shocked that there were people in her home asking her about her miscarriage. She was like, "That's so private," mm-hmm. and I was really perturbed by that too. Mm-hmm. In a lot of ways, these trials are like these women putting being put on trial for how good of mothers they are. And again, I think it just ends up being an unjust indictment of poor mothers. Mm-hmm 
So I get apparently the police like went into her trailer and took pictures of an unflushed toilet and a beer can on the floor, and they used that as examples of being like, "Wow, look how neglectful she is as a mother." Of course, she would ultimately do this to her baby. Mm-hmm. Being criminalized for being poor, I feel like was a constant theme in this book. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to talk about the mothers in particular because there's gendered things that didn't yeah. happen to the men. Like we read about a series of women who were pregnant while incarcerated and then had to deliver their babies while they were still incarcerated and they did so while they were shackled to the bed that they were delivering their Mm -hmm. baby on. It's completely dehumanizing. I remember, um, what was her name? Was it Tri- Trina? Mm-hmm. I thought it was Trina, but I think Trina? that's because mm-hmm. that's there's like a singer by that name that pronounces it that way, so I really don't know if that's how you pronounce it. Uh, T-R-I-N-A. Yeah, so <laughs> that that young woman was like, so she was sent to prison, and then while in prison she was raped, and then gave birth to her child, and was immediately, like you said, was chained to the to the bed and gave birth while being, you know, like, cuffed to the mm-hmm. to the bed. And then the baby was immediately taken from her and she suffered immense mental health issues and that only like made it even worse. I think like that part was just like, I cannot believe like everything that she's been put through and then on top of it, you take the child away. Mm -hmm. And the person who raped her, I believe they released them anyway, if I remember correctly, like they didn't actually. It wasn't in a correctional guard and he Mm -hmm. was fired or, but like he was, he was just transferred somewhere else actually. Yeah. And the issue of sexual assault in prison for women was Brian Stevenson took a deal of time to talk about, and mm-hmm. I was disgusted. He talked about the Tutiweiler prison, which is a prison created specifically for women, and how at the time there was a rampant sexual abuse problem, and but nobody was paying attention to it. And like it got so bad that the chaplain was raping women when they would go to service. It's like insane. And then there was, and they, it was the same, there were similar issues of incarcerated women being raped by correctional guards and their being, them being able to tell that it was the correctional guards baby because of DNA tests and the correctional guards just stayed in that place or were transferred to another prison, but like were still allowed to be around women. Mm-hmm. And he talked about how the, the regular practice was that the guards could look at the women when they were showering if it was count. So basically like, oh, if it's count, you had an excuse. Like, oh, it's count. I have to go to the shower to make sure that everybody's here. And the, the guards would just use it as an opportunity to like look at the women. Yeah. And you also couldn't go to the bathroom in privacy. The male guards could see you go to the bathroom too. Yeah. I think it's like an immense disregard just for basic, I think like human rights are just constantly being violated and i think that these like these prisons facilitate further and justify justifying just because somebody committed a crime Mm -hmm. it's like we forsake them and we forget about them and whatever happens we just like turn it turn an eye away and i just really kind of felt like as i was reading this it was just like we were shining a light on the people that we've just kind of tucked away in the darkness and like didn't think about Mm -hmm. and you're like I can't believe all of these things are happening to these people Mm -hmm. and how we let this go on so long or let let this still go on you know Mm -hmm. I think that's why so many of the people released like constantly talked about Mm -hmm. the folks that they left behind still in prison Marsha Colby made it a point to when she, she received an award I think by the Equal Justice Initiative and in her speech she said that all that she that she spent so much time thinking about the women that were still on death row that were being ignored Mm -hmm. and I think it's because once you bear witness to that being one of the only people to see that it moves you permanently yeah Yeah. I know Walter is a constant theme a constant story in the Mm -hmm. in the entire book also discusses like they're still in there I know he also is like their stall is still in there. He also talks about like want, obviously wanting to be able to do more, but mm-hmm. being trapped by the system. Should we get into Walter's story? Because folks don't know about it yet. Oh, okay. <laughs> sure. <laughs> My bad. <laughs> Walter McMillan was a black man who really made the unfortunate choice of having an affair with a white woman, Karen Kelly. It's like bitter for Minnie, his wife, who had, because she supported him throughout all of his incarceration, even though kind of what led to the situation was 
that affair. That being said, obviously what occurred was not Walter's fault and these white people in Alabama who had prominent positions in the criminal justice system wanted to see a black man die because he had had the audacity to have sex with a white woman. He had... He... Felt entitled enough and righteous enough to feel he had that he could the right that. to to a, a white woman's body or mm-hmm. able to be in her space, and mm-hmm. that <laughs> angered all the the white people in the area. Yeah, and so what ended up happening is that he was accused of a murder. It was a really grisly murder that made a lot of headlines in the small town in Alabama where it occurred because it was it was shocking. It, Rhonda Morrison was a woman who was working in a cleaners and she was shot dead and dragged to the back of the store and Walter McMillan was framed for her murder Mm -hmm. and multiple things going on here. I think whenever a high profile murder like this happens, police feel pressured to convict somebody Mm -hmm. to like kind of assuage the public and you know, make it seem like they serve a public function. Like, oh yes, they do help keep us safe. And so I think there was a lot of pressure for them to convict somebody for this crime first. But then I think also Walter had angered these people because of the affair that he had with Rhonda. It was such a small town that people Mm -hmm. knew these things. And so there was this man, Ralph Myers, who was also romantically involved with Karen Kelly, the woman that Walter had an affair with. And he was at the time incarcerated, either on suspicion of or when because he was convicted of a separate crime so he was already in state custody police had easy access to him Mm -hmm. and they pressured him to tell the story that walter mcmillan had been present that day and the story that he that ralph told was really really absurd like it's kind of gnarly to think that there's a jury that believed that story yeah it was also i know that also to add to that ralph was also upset that Kelly, right? Mm-hmm. Kelly uh, had an affair with a black man. Mm-hmm. Um, I know. I know that that was also a, uh, another layer too. So he used. I think he he used that to try to get back at him, and then mm-hmm. in doing so, in doing so, a lot of ish, a lot of things happened after a lot of waves. Yeah. But yeah, then 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 he was pressured to provide this story that was really absurd, and and he couldn't believe that this was actually taken well, cause, yeah. serious. Because the story that he told was that. He had never met Walter before, but this day, Walter came up to him at a gas station and forced him into a car at gunpoint and was like, drive me to the cleaners because my arm hurts, Mm -hmm. which is like his arm hurt too much to drive, but didn't hurt enough to shoot a gun. And also drive to the gas station to find him. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was like all these gaps for sure. Yeah, like how had he driven previously to the gas station? And then uh, Ralph said that he went to the cleaners, that he shot Rhonda, and then that there was an unnamed white man that was the ringleader who was the ringleader of the whole thing and that person was never found and Brian Stevens like that person wasn't found because that person doesn't exist yeah (laughs) yeah and so then he was sentenced to death for that crime and what's really ironic about that town is that they really pride themselves in being the basis of To Kill a Mockingbird and then they have a whole museum dedicated to it Mm -hmm. and they would like encourage Brian Stevenson to go every time he would go visit for trial or like to visit Walter. <laughs> yeah. And he was like, this is the Twilight Zone. Like, yeah. They think that they're a town about justice and they put this black man on trial for having sex with a white woman. Mm-hmm. And like, and there's so apart from Ralph Meyer's subsequent statements, also Karen Kelly testified that the, that the sheriff was like, oh, like you, like, why, why are you sleeping with the N word? Mm-hmm. So this was like a real, this isn't like, oh, us conjecture statements made from the mouths of these local law enforcement officers made it clear that they were retaliating against Walter because he had slept with a white woman. Yeah. Even when he was detained, the way they detained him was also very sketchy. I remember Brian was also, the the attorney was talking about how uh, when they detained him, they shouldn't have detained him because he hadn't even been, he hadn't been officially convicted yet. And they took them in and and that also was telling of like corruption that was going on that some people had the power to just get him sent immediately to death row Mm -hmm. and wait there. And he hadn't even like hadn't even gone into the process yet. Yeah. So pretrial detention always occurs in criminal prosecutions. But what Janice is talking about is that uh, Walter was detained before his trial on death row. Yeah. (laughs) A place where you only go when you're convicted to death. 
Yeah. The, it's, it's absurd. It's, it's like weird. <laughs> Crazy. Like, really disgusting and terrible. The law enforcement did that to shake Walter and scare him. Mm-hmm. And then subsequently they would point to that as evidence for how dangerous this man was. Mm-hmm. And like the public and the media would point to that as evidence of how dangerous Walter was. They would say, oh, like he was so dangerous that before he even went to trial, they put him on death row. Yeah. Because they require that extra security. Mm-hmm. No, that was just them being lawless, you know. And we were talking before about how Walter's case... So he... Actually, he was one of the people in the book who was incarcerated for the least amount of time, wrongfully. Because it was six years. Yeah. It was. But he talked about how... Or there were resulting permanent injuries, even though he was incarcerated for six years. Like, his marriage was destroyed. By the time he was released, many... His wife told Brian Stevenson... You know, I think that you should talk to Walter and tell him that I don't think it's such a good idea if he comes back to live here anymore. You know, I I just think so much has happened. Things can't go back to the way that they were before. And that broke my heart. Yeah. Because she stood by him the whole time while he was incarcerated, wrongfully convicted. She stood by him because she knew that he hadn't done the crime. Mm-hmm. And it's so sad that even though she had that loyalty throughout, like their relationship couldn't go back to what it was before just because of how much hurt had occurred. Yeah. And she found out about the affair through the tr- through the, the entire process. Mm-hmm. She didn't know beforehand. Mm-hmm. So I think that also was an impact, aside from the trauma that came from, from him going through, this, through that criminal justice system process. Mm-hmm. Definitely impacted her. And I, and I, I can understand, but I, I do think that's like another another layer that happens after someone is put into the, to the justice system. And mm-hmm. There's no way to go back after the trauma that's been committed on both the person who was convicted and the family who were affected by it. Yeah. The, I think maybe one of the reasons why Brian Stevenson chose to highlight the Walter trial so much throughout the book is that it showed the collateral consequences of a conviction like this mm-hmm. because, oh, we didn't even add this fact. But the, like, it was really, really, truly absurd that Walter was accused of this crime because the whole, like, the, during the whole window of time where the crime could have been committed, he was at a fish fry. Half of the black community, uh, it was at his house, and he was fixing his car because it was broken. So he was, like, literally in the driveway with a mechanic looking over his car the whole time, and, like, everybody that was at the fish fry saw him. Mm-hmm. And so the black community was traumatized because they were just, like fuck we could we could that could be us we could be wrongfully incarcerated whenever and it doesn't matter if there was 50 eyewitnesses that said that walter couldn't have done it he was still incarcerated Mm -hmm. yeah that was a very important fact Mm -hmm. you're right um (laughs) that was his complete alibi and it was it was completely dismissed just because of of the the guy ralph who said that no i i claim that he was he was here and this is what happened and no matter what anyone would say that was like that was like god's language or something for people well i feel like it just shows how much that criminal justice system valued the opinion and like witnessing of a white man versus mm-hmm. a whole community of black people like it yeah. literally didn't matter that there were like 50 75 people who were saying that they saw walter that whole morning yeah. it just took one white man and a really absurd story to yeah. get this man convicted mm-hmm. and, and it i think it was it was because that community of white people wanted Walter to be punished because they had already decided before the fact that Walter was was wrong. And you you had talked about that about how being presumed innocent until you're convicted guilty is not something that's afforded to black boys and mm-hmm. to black men in the, in the criminal justice system. And that's what occurred with Walter because it's like it didn't really matter what evidence the state had; he was going to be convicted regardless. Yeah. The whole yeah the whole statement of being. A- being innocent until proven guilty definitely does not apply mm-hmm. um, in the, in, and I feel like even no matter now as well yeah. so I think that people like to go back to that statement over and over again but it really I don't it does not apply realistically mm-hmm. no you're right it's, it still doesn't apply in modern times like I'm thinking about how in immigration proceedings prior arrests mm-hmm. can be brought up things that arrests and charges even if they were dropped subsequently can still be brought up in, in the evaluation of your moral character. Mm-hmm. Not, not to always make it about immigration, but... <laughs> but relevant. <laughs> but relevant. <laughs>
you want to talk about what you had commented on about how Brian Stevenson had explained that the death penalty can be seen as a modern form of lynching when it's used in this way? Yeah, I that's something that I noted and I was very I just kind of caught like it just kind of made me just kind of revel and think about how the system has found ways to go around like reform within the justice system to still work in their favor to continue racism mm -hmm. and to continue implementing things to keep the order of white supremacy. And one of the things he talked about is that the death penalty was a modern day form of lynching. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, like I didn't, I never thought of it in that way, but after reading this and going through it, I could, have def I could definitely see how that was applied here. Mm -hmm. And and most most of the most of the people who are in prison who are up on death row are people of color, are men of color, mm -hmm. and I and it just it just further like reinforced that is definitely true, mm -hmm. further disturbing. <laughs> and I think the Walter case is a really clear example of that because mm -hmm. that's literally like this kind of thing is literally what would have incited a lynch mob before. Mm -hmm. um, a black man being accused of having slept with a white woman is was literally something that could result in you being publicly lynched. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what it felt like. It kind of felt like his conviction was to assuage the white rage over this potential interracial dating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was like the, the perfect staple to reaffirm what the white community felt black people's place was. Um, and they used him as like a platform to, to do that which was terrible and yeah. disregard for humanity and, and obviously and it shows when you read the piece you're like wow like they they have no care about what if he is innocent and I think they just constantly are marching on this chain of like he's he's gonna be convicted no matter what no matter how 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 much evidence there is to say otherwise yeah well so what really disappointed me was hearing was reading about how in the post-conviction evidentiary hearing that Brian Stevenson had with all this evidence being like, Ralph Myers lied. This person, he said it to this person and this person and this person that he lied. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and like, whatever, I forget yeah. what. There's Ryan... even a white man who vouches for him, <laughs> like not fixing his car until like six months later. So right. he couldn't have driven his truck. Yeah, he like, introduced yeah. new things and like also I discovered things that the prosecution hadn't divulged to the defense lawyers in the first instance, which is what they were supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And there had been like a bunch of white people that had shown up in support of the state, in support of making sure that the prosecution would be upheld. And they left the courtroom when, when they started hearing this new evidence because they would they don't they don't want to hear the truth yeah they like they were upset hearing it, these things that confused them like wait i thought he was guilty and instead of like really grappling with that they just left the courtroom yeah they were like no this this man is not our our perfect like evil black man had we had imagined right and it's couldn't couldn't see it and had to leave because they were just so dumbfounded yeah i remember that was like wow at least they made room for all the community who yeah. supported him. Yeah, well, so something super weird had happened earlier in the morning because because the whole black community was traumatized by this, they really cared about what was happening with Walter yeah. and his second chance. And so a whole crowd of people was showing up to the trial and of black folks. And so then the next day, I don't know what happened, who, who called who, but a bunch of white people showed up yeah. in support of the prosecution. And the deputy had policed it so that they got to sit in the courtroom first and he didn't let any black folks into the courtroom. Mm -hmm. And so only like half of the people that had wanted to show up could go. And it wasn't only until Brian Stevenson actually came and was like, hey, like, why isn't no one allowed in? They even wouldn't let him, him in until yeah. he was like... Well, because then they didn't know he was a lawyer. He's like, oh, so, I mean, I'm the defense lawyer, so I, I'm pretty sure I have to be let in. Yeah, he's like, ah, what's going on? Okay. And then that's when he went and he discussed, like, this is not okay. He talked to the judge. He brought it up to the judge, and the judge was kind of like, oh, whatever. Like, come. The judge was like, he rolled his eyes and said, your people just need to get here early, Brian And then he... Like, he was like, no, that wasn't the issue. They were here earlier. Your deputy literally didn't let them inside. Mm -hmm. like, your people. Ugh. There's, like, constant, like, racism, like, yes. everywhere. It just seeped into the system yes. by people. Yes. And he was like, I feel like those are the things that are hard to address, too, because I think along with this justice system as a whole being very racist and how it affected all these people by being criminalized when they, they didn't do anything wrong.
wrong. Or, or not like, given or fair like, trial, yeah. anyway. Or, like, overly criminalized Over, for what they did. Yeah, I think it was, like, the, the small, passive-aggressive ounces of racism throughout. Or even, like, like clearly racism, too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, constantly throughout his fight to, like, help all these people. Um, I think you don't even think about when he was, like thought to be a thief outside of his own home when he was apprehended oh, yeah. um, the attorney. I was like, these are like the small things that you're also dealing with along with trying to represent people. I, I think that he t- talks a lot about the nuances of racism. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he talked about things that you face as a person of color, being a lawyer or yeah. just being in the legal profession. Yeah, Like he told a story about needing to visit a client and in the parking lot seeing this huge truck with a bunch of confederate Uh, symbols and bumper stickers one said if i had known it was going to be like this i would have picked my own damn cotton yeah just really wild absurd things and brian Stevenson entered the prison and he the guard who's at the front forced him to strip search forced him to be strip searched before he could go see his client that is that does not occur that's not standard practice for lawyers to have to do that was a complete overreach and that happened because he was a black man Mm -hmm. and when he was going to visit his client that same guard was like hey did you see a big truck with a bunch of confederate flags and bumper stickers on it and brian stevenson was like yeah i did he was like i want you to know that's my truck ugh yeah serious la palma flashbacks (laughs) ugh yeah i do feel like it was kind of like Con- like those constant little those things were were throughout the piece. It was mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. the subtle, also straight up racism from all of the people in the si- in the system. I I I wonder. I wish I would have we gotten more of like a reactionary comments from him throughout the piece. I think I would have liked because it kind of just seems like he just is like running running through everything sort of and just kind of like dealing with it. But I'm sure it was not as easy as as he made it out to seem. Or maybe it was, I don't know. I'm trying to represent people. I do kind of get respectability politics vibes from Brian Stevenson, and I think that might have been why we didn't get more forceful reactions from him, because that is something that I noted about him throughout the whole book, is like he's presented with these inflammatory situations, and he handles it with grace every time. You know, like with this, I don't know, with the strip searching, I don't don't know how I would have handled that. Yeah. I think I wouldn't have done it. I think I wouldn't have seen my client that day. There's also other layers, too. Like, you're also a woman. Right. The process of being stripped as a woman. Right. And, like... Right. Okay. Yeah. So I think that's, like, another layer, too, to think about. But... Yeah. I also feel like I would have... I think it's hard to to put yourself in someone's shoes, but I feel like there's a lot of times where I was like, this is, like, unsafe, or, like, how is he still moving forward after receiving all these death threats and all these things. Yeah, but the Walter McMillan, as a result of the Walter McMillan case, they received multiple bomb threats. Mm -hmm. And there was a very real threat from that because around that time, four, there had been four other instances of real bombings Mm -hmm. because someone had sent bombs to civil rights activists. And people had died. People People had died. died. So it was like very, a very scary time to be attempting to fight fight in these kind of civil cases. Yeah. My thought with that was that there's only, you have to pick your battles. There's only mm-hmm. so much energy you have. And I think that for Brian Stevenson was so committed and dedicated to his clients that he, I think he's willing to endure a, a lot of maltreatment mm-hmm. in order to get what was necessary for his clients. I mean, he was willing to be strip searched for his clients. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. He did a lot, definitely go far and beyond for his clients. I, I, and well, this is like a subtle thing, but I know he talked about how when he, I think when he was going, going to trials for Walter, he talked about the way he dressed for court mm-hmm. and trying to assure that he was dressed in the most like non-attention grabbing, very, very formal, stereotypical lawyer kind mm-hmm. of attire to not, not to prevent anything from dissuading or affecting the case in a negative way. He's like, I don't want to be the reason why my client is negatively impacted or not tried in a fair way. And I was like, it was like subtle things of things you have to assure because you feel like you could be the reason why they're tried unfairly. I, I, I know it's like very small, but I do think it's in the legal field you think about constantly. Like, No, I do think about that. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, if I, if I wear this cloak for sure, this judge is going to think like, I'm not taking this seriously and they're going to try this, like, or they're not going to think about this case seriously, which I think is, a, it's terrible. Like, they, I mean, that's just how, how you know that this is led by emotions and like mm-hmm. actual, like, 
legal reaction or like legal um, litigation. I don't know. It just it just seems more emotional. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk about Antonio, the fourteen-year-old? Yes. So Antonio, he's the kid. He was the kid who was, if I'm recalling, because there's a couple kids in here that I I remember, and he was a kid who was. He was a part of the kidnapping, right? So what we're talking about. Yeah. So Antonio was a kid who, if I recall correctly, experienced abuse from his. Was it his father? I think so. Actually, yeah. Because I wrote down that he was raised by a depressed mother. Who neglected him like mm -hmm. when he cried she would just leave him alone and that's the kind of stuff that has long-lasting trauma on a person right so he was dealing with his mom's lack of presence and neglect and then he, he lived in a really violent neighborhood very violent neighborhood and it was it was florida right yeah and he at one point it was so bad that i think they mentioned that there was like 12 shootings or something like mm -hmm. a week yeah, or like in two, two months, something like that. Absurd. Something absurd. You're like, this is astronomical like, this amount of shootings happen. in the area. Yeah. And they were constantly like ducking down for during these shootings. And I think at one point he was outside. He was like, he was on his bike. Mm -hmm. And he was shot like three times mm -hmm. in the stomach and another area of his body. And he was yelling for help. And his brother, his older brother, who was 14, I believe at the time. Was he 15? He was a little bit older. Yeah, came out to help him, and in doing so was shot in the head and killed. Mm -hmm. He was taken to the hospital, his brother died, and he his mother sent him away to California to be away from what was going on in the violence and, and hoping that he would be better off in California. But unfortunately, while he was in California, he got into an unfortunate situation where a couple older men convinced him to be a part of a, a fake kidnapping to get a ransom. Mm -hmm. And when he got in the car, they started to be pursued by two men in a car behind them. Mm -hmm. And they turned out to be undercover cops, mm -hmm. which they didn't know. Mm -hmm. And they he proceeded to then be told to shoot at them. Mm -hmm. And he was given a gun to do so by the older men. And he did. But unfortunately, he wasn't apprehended and put in jail for this very reason. Mm -hmm. and No one was hurt. No one was hurt in the, in the process. But he was placed in prison and I think he was 14. Is that, is that mm -hmm. correct? And couldn't even fit in the prison attire so they had to they cut six inches off the bottom of the pants so that they could fix they were hanging and dangling mm -hmm. from his legs he was also co-tried with his 27 year old defendant he was treated as an adult from the very beginning basically yeah. mm -hmm. so that was also like extremely i think shocking also i think element wait we said that it was florida but this he was sentenced in california I think he's from Florida, but this happened in California. Yeah. Because under California law, a juvenile has to be at least 16 to be sentenced to life imprisonment without parole for murder. But there's no minimum age for kidnapping. So the Orange County judge sentenced Antonio to imprisonment until death, mm -hmm. asserting that he was a dangerous gang member who could never change or be rehabilitated despite his difficult background and absence of any significant criminal history. Mm -hmm. So I know it happened when he was sent away by his mother. Mm -hmm. So I'm assuming he... He was tried in California. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Damn. At 14, Antonio became the youngest person in the United States condemned to die in prison for a crime in which no one was physically injured. I guess we talked about how we appreciated that Brian Stevenson humanizes these folks because, mm -hmm. I mean, I think like the Orange County judge did the exact opposite and saw Antonio in this one-dimensional way as like a quote-unquote dangerous gang member because of where he grew up, where he was living. But I appreciate that Brian Stevenson lets us know everything that these kids go through. Like with Antonio, where his brother was shot in front of him. Mm -hmm. And you know, I'm assuming he experienced a lot of guilt for the fact that he was, it was him calling out for help that led his brother to run outside. So you, had, you were right about his father abusing him. So it's from the time Antonio was in diapers, he endured abusive beatings yeah. by his father who hit him with his hand, fist, belt, and extension cords, causing bruising and cuts. He also witnessed terrifying conflicts in which his parents would violently assault each other and threaten to kill each other. Mm -hmm. The violence was so bad that on more than one occasion, Antonio called the police. The police was at his home so many times before, and you would think that if they were like committed to public safety, then something would have happened to not 
have allowed Antonio to be in such an abusive home. I, I don't remember which case it was, because I feel like it's also relevant, where they talk about how they're not allowed to discuss character in, in cases as well. Do you remember that? And yeah. how you were not allowed to bring up past traumas to to express why this person led to being involved in this crime and how it impacted why they did what they did and i think there was like several cases where they tried to fight this and like make it so that you can bring it up i just couldn't find it in the oh that was trina's situation i think so trina was her she's a young girl her father was a former boxer whose failed career turned him into a violent abusive alcoholic Mm -hmm. And he would rape her, Trina's mother. He would regularly punch, kick, and verbally abuse her mother in front of the children. The Her father would go to extremes, stripping Edith naked and beating her until she writhed on the floor in pain while her children looked on fearfully. Trina showed signs of intellectual disabilities and other troubles at a young age. At age five, she accidentally set herself on fire, resulting in severe burns across her chest, stomach, and back. Her mother died when she was just nine. And then her father began sexually abusing her older sisters, so they fled home. And then at that point, Trina just decided to leave as well. She slept and she was homeless. So on page 141 of the book, if you if you have the book and you're looking this up, <laughs> uh, the court agreed striking down this kind of evidence in Booth versus Maryland. The court decision was widely criticized by prosecutors and some politicians it seemed to energize the victim's rights movement. Less than three years later, the court reversed itself, Payne versus Tennessee, and upheld the rights of states to present evidence about the character of the victim in a capital sentencing trial. Wait, no, this isn't character about the defendants. This is character of the victim. Oh, okay. Character about the victim. Which is really problematic for black defendants because black defendants are... He, he cites the exact numbers in the book, but they're much more likely to be put on death row if the victim was white. Mm-hmm. It's like way more yeah. than that. But it's no, so I think, I'm pretty sure I was trying, that's why I was trying to read Trina's situation, page 149. Yeah. Oh, Trina, yeah, Trina was the one who delivered her baby handcuffed. Yeah. Her. She was also tried in Pennsylvania. Trina suffered horrible, horrible things, and as a 14-year-old, she wanted to talk to some friends of hers who were boys and lived in her neighborhood, and I guess because like, of Trina's family situation, her mom had forbidden her kids from playing with Trina. Mm-hmm. So Trina was like, well, I still want to see them. So she snuck into their house. And she had matches. She lit matches to try and find her way to the boys' rooms. And she dropped the match and lit the house on fire. And the boys died as a result. Yeah. Of the, of the asphyxiation of the, the From smoke. the smoke. And so the judge actually found that she didn't have any intent to kill. Mm-hmm. Which it, the state was arguing that she did. They were trying to make it seem like she was malicious. But it was just a horrific accident. Mm-hmm. And... Under Pennsylvania law, the judge could not take into account the absence of intent into account during the sentencing. He couldn't consider Trina's age, mental illness, poverty, the abuse she had suffered, or the tragic circumstances surrounding the fire. Pennsylvania's sentencing law was inflexible. For those convicted of second-degree murder, mandatory life imprisonment without the possibility of parole was the only sentence. When he imposed a sentence, he said, this is the saddest case I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. That's what I was talking about. I was like, I was getting it confused, but yes. Yeah. I was like, what? You're not going to consider any of this? Right. All of these things that happened that led to this, I think that's where I was like, what? Like, mm-hmm. There's like no humanity. And that's why this, this book process. is so important because it's the counter narrative to those opinions. Mm-hmm. And then I know I highlighted here what's really disturbing is that Pennsylvania has condemned mandatory life from prison without parole for crimes they were accused of committing when they were between the ages of 13 and 17. It is the largest population of child offenders condemned to die in prison in any single jurisdiction in the world. That's so scary. I was like, what? I was like, in the world, Pennsylvania alone. Mm-hmm. Trina had prior contact with the criminal justice system. Not I remember. They did run away though. But there wasn't. I don't think there was it like a getting involved in any like petty crime or anything. I guess going back to Antonio because I think he had. He had had, oh, I think that was why his sentence was enhanced, because of some prior involvement he had with the police, mm-hmm. and that was when Brian Stevenson ra- raised the point that most kids who have prior histories or convictions are punished for things that affluent teenagers engage with in impunity, and that it's not a reflection of these kids being morally bad, it's just that 
they're policed more, and so it's more likely that an officer will catch you doing something. Mm-hmm. Oh, that reminded me of the super predator situation. In the 90s, the term super predator was being shared. That was part of the justification for the growth of mass incarceration in the 90s under Bill Clinton, was this idea that that there was a new kind of child crime committer, and that, there, that this new type of child crime committer was a super predator. I saw that and I was like, what in the world? It sounded so outlandish. Like, I was like, where did you all get this from? And then it was it was claimed to be like a myth. And I was like, okay, of course. I was like, where did you all, where did you base this from? Yeah. I was, I don't know if this was like maybe a term that's, that's known in like the legal, like, I don't know, the legal world well, or no, I, it, was like, it came up again in the 2016 election because... Black Lives Matter activists confronted Hillary Clinton and they, and they brought up the super predator term because Hillary Clinton was one of the people who was publicizing this idea, oh who was gosh. endorsing this idea. I mean, you know, it, it provided justification for their harsh criminal justice policies, their harsh sentencing policies. Yeah. And, and I say there because they've always worked as a team. I feel like people say, oh, it's not fair to blame Hillary Clinton for the Bill Clinton stuff, but... She was, she was like a, she was a political figurehead, and she, mm-hmm. her voice mattered, and I think she just dodged the question. Yeah, definitely debunked. So everyone knows. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and though it's brought up, he brings it up in here. Yeah, the academics that had originally provided support for the term almost all came eventually publicly said that they were wrong. Academics, they're responsible. Can go back to the intro. Yeah, I was actually just doing that. I was like, oh, I feel like we need a way to segue over here. Okay, Brian Stevenson tells this really funny story. It's like funny to me because I've been there before and you've been there before too, Denise. As people who work with folks who are incarcerated or detained, mm-hmm. so he talks about how he was a 23 year old law student at Harvard working in Georgia on an internship, and his task was to meet a condemned man and he was visiting this person alone with no lawyer accompanying me. <laughs> and to emphasize, he was going to visit someone who's on death row. Yeah, yeah. Delicate kind of conversation to have with somebody. It's, it's in, the, in that kind of predicament. I've never actually even been in that specific situation. So he, he drove there by himself. He, uh, he says at that point he didn't really know anything about the capital punishment system, mm-hmm. and that he hadn't even taken a class on criminal procedure yet. And he was, like, rehearsing in the car, like, what to say, um, like, how, what to do. Yeah, I mean, I think this struck us because we've both been in so many situations where you're tasked with something so impossible, and it's like, you're not really given training on it, you know, it's kind of a perennial problem in the nonprofit industrial complex, it's like, lack of training, and I think that also there's just kind of a lack of emphasis on the importance of sensitivity, you know, because it's like, obviously you can go and deliver a message because you have a voice, but it's, it's like trying to do it without fucking up the situation yeah. more. Further traumatizing somebody or escalating yes. the situation. Yes, yes, Definitely. <laughs> I do think there's like cases, oh, you need to go do a sexual abuse screenings with this kid to make sure that they were abused at the shelter or mm-hmm. something like that. And mm-hmm. you're just like how do you do that guy in a, in a right. delicate manner <laughs> That's where you don't saying. further hurt the kid yeah but also make sure that if they're being harmed it doesn't continue mm-hmm. That's definitely an example definitely relatable to what he was going through what's what i'm saying about the training it's like like we have we sit in trainings where people say don't re-traumatize and like, so, and like sometimes you're given some concrete suggestions but apart from that you really are just on your own <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. And I do think that usually those conversations or those trainings are more like, these are the things to look out for to know that you're traumatizing them. It's yeah. not really like how to minimize things to, to do to not re-traumatize them, like how to do so. And if, even if there are practices for not how to do that, there's still the rhetoric of we need to get the information. So you're going to have to do what you have to do. Oh, yeah. Which we just, we just so we just tread through and, and not think about the person that you're affecting. I was reflecting on that too when he talked about Charlie because I think it took him like a really long time to get Charlie to open up. Yes. Like I think he had to go visit him twice. 
he 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 did. I think he did open up that first time, but he it took like a long time. Yeah. He said it took him o- over an hour. Yeah. And he wouldn't talk the entire time. He was mm-hmm. just like shaking and like really nervous. Mm-hmm. And, like, didn't want like him to be near him. Mm-hmm. And he tried to ask really absurd questions to like get him distracted, and he wouldn't answer. Mm-hmm. And, and he constantly kept looking around and not facing him. Mm-hmm. I thought about that because of this very thing that you're saying that. Because I think oftentimes nonprofits have to report to the foundations that give them money the stats of who they help and how many people they help and what the result is, that there is this obsession with efficiency. Mm-hmm. And it's just like when you're dealing with people who have experienced this level of trauma, you just can't expedite an intake, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, I, this, it stuck with me that he was w- sat with the kid for an hour because I honestly don't think I would have been able to do that. Yeah. In in my position where I was providing assistance to people who were detained in their deportation proceedings, I, I don't think I, I would have had the time. To, I've had to cut meetings short mm-hmm. in ways that pain me. Yeah. I agree. I do think that because we are, because we're reacting to a machine, we inadvertently try to keep up by also acting like one. Yeah. And, and in doing so, we, like, are becoming, like, in some ways it feels, like, soulless. Like, you forget, mm-hmm. like, you're dealing with humans who, like, have emotions that you can't compartmentalize in 30 minutes and, mm-hmm. like, address and figure out it's something that's going to require time and not, it can't be resolved in one sitting. Mm-mm. And it's it's not, I feel like that we're not very kind to that. We just, we kind of just rush it through. Mm-hmm. It's so hard when the need is so immense and the yeah. people are so few. Right. Yeah. Like the idea that like four lawyers could service three thousand detained adults in Arizona is silly. You know. It's crazy. And Brian Stevenson was kind of facing similar numbers. You know, in terms of how many people wanted his help too. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I do feel like I I was wondering because he he also seemed to have traveled to all over the country to to provide support. Mostly in the south. Yeah, Mm -hmm. but I know he did travel for Antonio when he was in California. Oh, okay, okay. So like, I wonder like how he how he got how he got wind of the case because he was over there Mm -hmm. he was living in florida so obviously it sounded like he was all traveling for cases which Mm -hmm. i think maybe also puts weight to like the fact there's there's a shortage of support in that field Mm -hmm. another field i'm sure too yeah at least for free legal legal services in that that particular criminal yeah yeah i think death penalty work is super super hard it's really emotionally challenging and it's not well paid and so I think it's hard to attract talent I mean I think that's why like, he started the equal justice initiative mm-hmm. you know cause somebody needed to provide that legal support yeah I know there there is like I feel like some things to like touch base on too where justice system condemns irresponsibly I feel like mm-hmm. that was obviously a constant theme and another thing was like the struggle for redemption I think we're I think that that is something that currently we're struggling with mm-hmm. still mm-hmm. this this practice of like we we put people in the system they are tried and they're convicted and then they get out and we still push them out we still shame them for what they've done even though they've given their time and done and they've done the time that they need to do we don't give them any more opportunities or access to rehabilitate themselves we just kind of outcast them mm-hmm. which only leads them to then in a cycle to go back into criminal activity to survive mm-hmm. so i think he's, there's a constant theme of like how how to really claim redemption mm-hmm. and how to how to how do you do that um, in a society that just condemns and then forsakes people who've gone in the criminal justice system that reminds me of what i wanted to bring up with the the women who are incarcerated because he notes that 75 to 80 percent of women incarcerated have children Mm -hmm. and that when women are released if they have been convicted of a felony they won't have access to section 8 housing they won't have access to food stamps Mm -hmm. and that's detrimental not just to the woman but to the kids talking about their criminal justice system condemning people irresponsibly i think the collateral consequences that affect family members and the community as a whole really need to be talked about because what blame does the, that child have? Mm-hmm. Why, uh, how, how is that child's welfare relevant in any way to the punishment of this mother? Yeah. And then also going back to why after the time has been served, we still continue punishing people. Yeah. 
Why do we continue to be like, you no longer can vote. You no longer have access to welfare. You no longer have access to these resources. I, if anything, it's more like... You should be welcomed with that. You would, you should be like... like, welcome back into society. Exactly. Reintegrated and provided more services so that you can live a a much more healthier lifestyle Mm -hmm. and not go back into that due to poverty or other, other situations. Well, it really makes you question what the purpose of the justice system is. Mm-hmm. I think we should talk about Herbert now, the veteran. Yeah. So Herbert was somebody who, black man who fought in Vietnam and he suffered mental illness while in Vietnam. And Vietnam was a very, very traumatic war for a lot of the people who fought it. And Brian Stevenson talks about how he saw most of his platoon members die in front of him. And he started having psychotic episodes Mm -hmm. while he was in combat. Mm -hmm. And multiple of his officers, supervising officers, sent Herbert to psychiatric evaluation. And still it took seven months for him to be discharged Mm -hmm. when he was like, having mental health episodes and breakdowns in combat. Yeah. And so obviously that just deteriorated his mental health completely. He came back to the U.S. and became obsessed with a woman. Yeah. And I think kind of placed all of his hope in her in like a really obsessive, unhealthy way. Yeah. Depended all of his emotional happiness on On her. this person, yeah. Which I think itself is like a sign of mental illness. Like yeah. Obviously, this man was not well. He could not logically figure out how to live his life. Yeah. And so he became hell-bent on acquiring the love of this woman and so he came up with this really tragic plot to gain her love and what he was going to do was that he was going to prepare a bomb that he was going to leave on her front door and when she went to go get it he was going to like jump out of the bushes and push her out of the way and rescue her yeah and that was how she was going to fall in love with him again obviously this man is suffering from mental illness none yeah. of this makes sense this is a wild story it was definitely i was like i don't know how this <laughs> like, is supposed to work yeah, I, don't- like, I stopped following you when yeah. you- <laughs> with the creation of the bomb <laughs> no and so it was, and it was especially especially tragic because two of the woman's little family members who were children, two little girls, I think her nieces, opened the door, picked up the package, and they were the ones who died. Yeah, I think they were walking by actually, or something. Oh really? Something like something like that. I thought it was like they had like opened the the door, and he thought that she was gonna open the door. And it was, yeah. And it was the kid. They picked it up out yes. of curiosity. Yeah. No, like, like, was, like he, didn't, he didn't intend for the kids to pick up the package. No. That's what made it really sad. And it was supposed to go off like in a. It was like a time thing. Not. Oh, yeah. It wasn't supposed to react to movement. That was what they brought up. Fortunately, it didn't work the way it was supposed to. Yeah. So it went off when the, gr- when the gr- little girl was like looking at like what is this mm-hmm. and like moved it around mm-hmm. and terrible things happened. Yeah. I brought this up in relation to what we were just talking about because when Brian Stevenson took on the case. At the first hearing, there were these two black women who stayed behind and were kind of whispering, looking at him. And they were like, hi, we're the living family members of these little girls. And we wanted to talk to you because we don't think that this man should be on death row. We, we think that enough hurt and death has happened from this terrible incident. And we don't, we don't want this to happen. We've been telling the prosecution this for years and nobody listens to us. So we were hoping you would listen to us. Yeah, and help us because they were not being provided any resources to support them. In, in terms of medical needs after the aftermath because one of their nieces survived and she mm. had a lot of medical uh, needs after the, the whole bombing mm. and wasn't receiving any resources. Mm-hmm. And I know that, so it was like very kind of ironic they were going to the person who was defending the, the person who caused the issue. Um, so it goes, Well, it, it just goes, shows how disconnected yeah. the prosecution is from the people. It's mm-hmm. like, that's why it's so funny that in prosecutions, the case is listed as the people versus Walter McMillan. Because it's like, you, if you really represented the people, you should be more concerned about the welfare of this victim's family. Because what, what is more effective and what's going to make these victims whole? Healthcare so that they can live lives as normally as possible despite that injury? Or a man being sentenced to death? Yeah. And you know what? I like actually really appreciated him painting the stories of, of executions that he's witnessed because he said it was like honestly it felt like the whole room didn't want to do it. it. Felt like the whole room felt knew this was wrong. 
Like they were all being coerced and forced to do it or something. I wouldn't say coerced and forced because I think... It, it definitely felt like odd. It, like nobody felt comfortable with what they were doing. Yeah. But also the banality of evil, right? Like everybody says they're just following orders. That's what all the Nazis said too. That's fair. Yeah. That's very fair, you're right. What is it like, what is the saying? A lot of bad things have been led with good intentions or something like that. The road tells paved with good intentions. Exactly. So um, there you go. It's totally fair. Yeah, so scenes of the execution really freaked me out. Oh no, it was horrible. I was, and then like, them them electrocuting the person and then it not working and they had to do it that again. That happened like t- multiple times. Yeah. Ugh. So yeah, there are multiple times where people were sentenced to be electrocuted in a chair and the state hadn't gotten the voltage right for killing someone immediately with the shock. So apparently, like, and apparently you could smell the burning the flesh. flesh. Mm-hmm. And death row prisoners would be able to smell it when it was happening. Because they were they were in walking distance of the electric chair. I know it's something that they talked about in the book, mm. is that the prisoners were, their cells were really close to the chair, and they called the chair, like, Yellow Mama or something, do you oh, remember? Oh, yeah. They all called called it that. I forgot why, but I was yeah. just like, oh my, the, the vividness of that description, because it was like a yellow chair, and... That's what Walter meant, that he was constantly thinking about his possible death. Yeah, so it was... Because it was ever-present. Yeah. Yeah, so... Uh, they, because they didn't get the voltage right, but, like, there was smoke emanating from the person's body, but they were still conscious. Their heart was so still beating. So they had to do it again. Yeah. Ugh. Go- going back to Herbert, though. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> going back to Herbert, I think one thing to think about, too, is, like... You know, he was sent to war and came back, obviously, very traumatized and affected. And, and this country just re-threw him back into society and expected that he was going to somehow fix himself after mm-hmm. those country trauma. Basically sent him to be traumatized and affected in this terrible way. Mm-hmm. And then we just expected that they that somehow he would resolve these issues on his own and mm-hmm. give him no proper services to, I don't know, somehow heal. And I think that that in itself was like a danger to society. They just reintegrated him in, in mm-hmm. and expected he would be okay. Mm-hmm. And I think that happens often. Like I, I always think when violence occurs, what, why did somebody do this? And like what happened beforehand? And like it's almost like we, we create these, these like almost like these weapons ourselves with people. Like don't give them the treatment that they need and the help that they need. And then we just like, reintegrate them into society after they've been traumatized. And the military was on notice that he had mental problems, mental yeah. mental health issues. So to me, that's like immediately when he was sent back home, he should have been sent to a facility inpatient outpatient treatment. Yeah. yeah, and like he and like the like Stevenson mentioned, he he was really smart and very intelligent, and obviously knew what he was doing because he knew how to create a bomb. I mean, it's mm-hmm. not like your mm-hmm. average Joe or average person knows how to put together a bomb. Yeah. So he he's like a he's definitely he was a his steals were a threat mm-hmm. in that state of mind that he was in mm-hmm. and something tragic happened. I think something also really important that he talked about in the book was the different trends around how, how we deal with mental health as a society mm-hmm. and how in the earlier half of the 20th century, most folks who were mentally ill were placed in psychiatric facilities because there was a movement of people who were like it's wrong to incarcerate mentally ill people yeah but then the psychiatric facilities also weren't a solution because there was practicing inhumane ways to assist people with mental health issues yeah yeah also like shock therapy mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. occurring mm-hmm. what other things did they mention i forgot the electroshock therapy was one there was they he talked about how people were involuntarily committed not because they were actually mentally ill but because they were just deviant from society so like gender non-conforming folks queer folks mm-hmm. were were, in, were involuntarily institutionalized mm-hmm. yeah and would like receive shock therapy to like you know make them straight Right. It wasn't a thing. Um, so a lot there was like a lot of media coverage around it, and then as a result, these facilities shut down, but there was no other solution that was created to deal with the mental health issue, and so now we're at where we're at now, where jails and prisons actually serve most mentally ill people. Yeah. I think it goes to show that like we're approaching the prison system in a very, in, in the wrong way, where... Mm-hmm. If we were providing people the right services and and 
really addressing the real issue like poverty or like racism and all these things that lead to mental health issues mm -hmm. i think i think it would it would not be the way that it is it would it would be a different reality yeah isn't like a an alternative way to look at it mm -hmm. we didn't even get to all of the stories so there's a lot to digest and do it with a friend mm -hmm. <laughs> yes please all right is there anything you want to add Yay.